Let's go tonight to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to continue our look at this book written by Solomon that gives us this perspective on how to live a meaningful life. And tonight we're going to finish chapter 4. We kind of we got into chapter 4 a little bit last week as we closed out chapter 3 and began chapter 4 looking at the problem of evil. And tonight we're going to pick up where we left off in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, all the way to verse 16, with this idea of the futility of self-investment. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 16, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The book of Ecclesiastes exposes time and again the futility of many things under the sun. As we attempt with Solomon to find meaning in this life outside of a relationship with God, he has come time and again back to this saying that there is, it is meaningless, it is hevel, it is vanity under the sun. We live in a world where so much is out of our control. How will we respond to that? Well, to many, the answer lies within themselves. They see no need to look to God or any other higher power and for their answers and trust. In 1875, a man by the name of William Henley wrote a poem, and the poem was entitled Invictus. And I believe that Henley's poem captures the feelings and beliefs of many when faced with the realities of life that Solomon has presented here. And the poem goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbound. 
Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a very self-absorbed poem, is it not? It doesn't matter what's going to happen in life. I'm in charge and I'm in control. And in the passage before us tonight, Solomon continues looking at the futility of man's efforts to mitigate life's harsh realities. It's fruitless, he says, to look within for value and meaning while there's great value in investing in others around us as we follow the Lord. We see here that the pursuit of fulfillment and meaning in life cannot be satisfied by serving self. And again, this is the natural place that many people go to look for satisfaction or meaning They look within when they can't find anything without. And again, Solomon has shown time after time after time that look around in the world. Look at the things that that you think will bring you meaning. Look at the things that that you think you control. Look at the things that that it seems like are going to bring you happiness or joy or or some shred of, of these things. And they're not there. And then he paints the picture, as we saw last week, of the sin and the injustice and the evil that the world uh, offers. And again, he he has just presented one seeming no-win situation after another. You know, no matter what you accomplish, it's going to be forgotten. No matter what you do, someone else has done it before you. No matter the mistakes you make, someone else will make them. They won't heed your advice. The cycle of life continues on. And so, how do you make headway? in a sin-cursed, sin-infiltrated world that goes round and round. Well, Solomon here presents some ways that you can take. In a world that continues to spin, if evil has set in and unable to be rooted out, you can look within, he said, and decide to do what's best for you. In a world around you that's going to let you down, hey, live for your own gain, make your own path, serve your own ends. And so Solomon says, that there is, first of all, self-services deprivation in our lives. And so here in verse 4, Solomon begins to present this, and he presents, first of all, one who is working, he says, with toil and skill, but what he presents is the uselessness of envy in our lives. He says, then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon here says, here is, a, here is one who has given himself to hard work and he's developed even talent in his life to, to, to engage in skilled labor. But all of this toil and all of this skill and all of this investment are for naught. They do not really serve the ends of serving oneself alone because what is the motivation, Solomon says? The motivation that he sees is envy. That this person has, has looked around at his neighbor's accomplishments or his coworker, whoever it is in his life, and wants nothing more than to be better than this other person. This is the old saying, right, of keeping up with the Joneses, right? That there is always someone who has it better than you. And 
Honestly, that isn't a proper motivation. Solomon says at the end of this verse, it's, it's hevel, it's, it's empty. It's chasing the wind. It's, it's useless. It's never ending. You can spend your whole life chasing something through envy. There's always someone else in your life who seems to have it better than you. And if you do make it better off than someone else, if you get to the point where you, here is this person that you have been trying to better and you make it better than them, then what? What are you going to do? The pursuit's over until you find someone else that you want to be better than. And, and, and the question you have to ask yourself is this. If that's your pursuit, if your pursuit is, I want to be better than this person, I want to have what they have and more, at the end of that pursuit, what have you really gained in life? What you have gained is futility. Solomon argues it isn't worth all the trouble that you bring into your life to try to keep up with someone else. And listen, in today's world especially, today the world dumps other people's ideal worlds into our hands and plasters them to our face, in front of our eyes, I should, you know, because they bring it to us on here. Now, how many times do you see a video or a picture or a, hey, here's a day in the life of, and you only see people at their best. You don't see people for who they really are. You see a, a carefully curated video or portrayal of this is what my life is. And if that's what we're trying to gain, if that's what we're trying to reach, we're trying to reach someone else's curated 30-second video on social media, then we don't understand how to pursue life. We're pursuing futility. You can give your life to chasing these dreams, but Solomon says it won't bring you meaning. There is a uselessness of envy in our lives. Being better than someone else isn't the answer. Envy is useless to give you meaning. So we continue on into verse 5, and we find someone else. So you have one person who is, who's doing everything he can to keep up with somebody else, right? He's, he's envious. And then you have the foolishness of laziness because you have here the fool folds his hands, and here's a great picture, and eats his own flesh. Well, that's a, that's a heartwarming one, right? Solomon shows us here someone who has gone in the other direction. Here is one who still serves himself. But you know how he does it? He doesn't work at all. That's the idea. He talks about folding his, his hands. He doesn't labor or toil. He doesn't envy his neighbor. He doesn't desire to one-up somebody in his life. He doesn't work. So what does Solomon call him? Fool. Solomon has much to say about the fool in the book of Proverbs. We learn in there that one of the things that a fool is is he is lazy. He thinks that he will find his meaning in life by doing nothing. Then, he can enjoy his life not having to struggle. Now, that may sound appealing, right? Having this life of ease. But in reality, it presents a serious problem. What is the natural consequence of being lazy that God has set up? Well, the natural consequence is lack. Right? If you're not going to work, you're not going to have anything to enjoy, right? God designed man to work. He placed this burden and the purpose of work in the heart of man. 
And world economies have borne out this truth time and again. Those who don't work cannot be truly successful. There is a a, a law that God has set up there. Solomon says here that the fool then will have to eat what? His own flesh. Again, what does the picture mean? He doesn't have anything else. He didn't gain anything. He will not be able to provide for himself. If you think you can enjoy yourself by not working, you'll soon find you have nothing to enjoy. Now, our sinful world has tried to ease this and give people this lifestyle, right? And we have welfare systems throughout this world that are abused over and over again because this is what people want. They want to, they want to enjoy life without working. We have parents that cater to their children And they say, you know, you can just draw out this workless adolescent life indefinitely. We'll just let you do this. When they need to be out facing the world and working. We fail to live out what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that you have to work. It's foolish not to. And if you don't, you don't get to enjoy the pleasures of life. So what does Solomon say? Solomon says laziness is not the way to find meaning, it's pure foolishness. What does Solomon mean by that? Does he mean it's silliness or immaturity? No. He means it's disobedience to God. That's what that means. It is foolishness is a railing against the fear of the Lord. And it will not end well. So, you can't find meaning through envy. You can't be lazy and find meaning, so perhaps you can find something in being discontented with your life and taking on trouble and and work. But Solomon says here in verse 6 that there is a weariness to discontentment. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Solomon, Solomon turns us now to observe another person serving himself in an attempt to find meaning. And here, Here is one who who can do nothing but stay busy to make sure he has everything he wants. It is the quest of a discontented heart. He thinks that by giving to himself to every pursuit to get what he wants, he can fulfill his deepest desires. And so what does Solomon say says that he has? He has two handfuls of toil. He has no rest in his soul. And instead he has another useless pursuit. Instead, what does Solomon say will be better? It would be better to have a handful of quietness through contentment in your life. It would be better to have a handful of rest because you're content with what God has brought you. Discontentment can be a very nasty sin that takes over our lives. Now, there is a time and there's a place to be discontent. And what do I mean by that? Spiritually, Discontentment can be a healthy thing. We need to be discontent spiritually and understand that we need to, there's never a moment in which in our lives we quit pursuing Christ-likeness. There's never a point which we say, you know, I'm just really content spiritually. I don't need to grow anymore. On this side of eternity, that'll never be true. Because apathy is certainly something that we should never be praised spiritually. But a constant spirit of discontentment in this life betrays a selfish heart. 
There is never enough, it seems, to satisfy our possession-minded lives. There's always something else to be gained. There's always more we need to have. There's always someone else that we need to be on top of and over them. And so a discontented life leads to a very weary life. We need to learn in life how to slow down in a healthy way. We do not need every experience, every possession, and every dollar. That's not where we find meaning in life. Our children will not flunk out of life if we do not give them every single thing or put them in every single program we can find. In fact, we do well to teach them how to balance life and how to handle times of quiet. Could it be that we are discontent and we are teaching our children to be discontent because we can't stand to be in our own headspace and in the quiet of our own lives? Sometimes we fill our lives with noise because we can't stand to be alone. We can't stand to be just us, our thoughts, and God. Constant pursuits, Solomon says here, will always be pursuits. He says here that this person has two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. The pursuit never ends. The discontentment never stops. It keeps going and going and going. We'll never find what we're looking for. So then Solomon turns once again, lastly, to someone serving himself in a pursuit and shows that there is a great isolation of greed. Verses 7 through 8, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. So here's one more example of self-service. And indeed, this may be the epitome of these pursuits. Here is a person who has shut out everyone else in his life. He has no children, he has no, he's not married, he has no family, he literally has no one else. Instead, he has poured his entire life in his own, into his own wealth. Well, everyone and everything else to him is just a distraction from that devotion. But he hasn't stopped to count the real cost. Notice the end of verse 8. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And so he just keeps working. He doesn't even stop to consider if he's making headway in his pursuits. He, he never self-evaluates. He's doing nothing but depriving himself of all the pleasures in life. And instead, he's just living a life that doesn't bring any satisfaction. You might ask the person here in verse 8, well, how much is enough? And the answer would be this, just a little bit more. Every time you ask just a little bit more. And what does Solomon say it is? It's vanity, it's hevel, it's useless. He says, uh, it is an unhappy business. It's an unhappy business to live this way. 
What good is it to live a life like this and have no one to share it with? What good is it to sacrifice relationships that matter so you can build some fancy portfolio? What good is it to die one day and have nothing, no one to leave anything to? The mountains of cash won't replace the friends and family you've alienated throughout the years. The houses and boats and cars and possessions will not bring you any meaning. The work friends and connections will melt away the day you can no longer benefit them, or more accurately, the day they no longer benefit you. Self-service leads to nothing, Solomon proves in these four verses, five verses, but deprivation. It leads us to uselessness, to, 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 no mean, to meaninglessness. We think we're going to build ourselves up and our lives up, but in reality, we're tearing them down. We're sacrificing what really matters on the altar of what we think we really need. Solomon says, you're not going to find any meaning there. But you're going to find meaning in other people. There is worth in others. So now in verses 9 through 12, Solomon makes a case for companionship, for for friendship, for relationships in life. And in verse 9, he says there's great value in that. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Turning away from the one who invests in only himself, depriving himself of true meaning and benefit in life, Solomon now turns to the one who invests in others. And he makes the case here that, that two are better than one. So instead of living selfishly, Solomon says we should extend ourselves into the lives of other people. We may think that we are loners in life, but Solomon says that simply isn't true, that we need other people. God created the universe and everything in it in six days, and at the end of his creation, he saw that it was good with one exception in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So from creation, mankind was created for companionship. We are created to have a relationship with God. We are created to have relationships with others who are created in the image of God. Honestly, isolation from other people is just another form of selfishness. It is self-centeredness and self-service. It's choosing to walk away from others and focus solely on my wants. Let's be honest. Relationships take work. Real, meaningful relationships with other people are not easy to cultivate and maintain. And no matter how much you and someone else are alike or you get along, you're going to have struggles and difficulties from time to time. You say, well, that's not true. I never struggle with anybody. Then I would argue that you're not challenging each other spiritually the way you should. You're just existing and affirming each other's life views. Because we're human beings. We're going to struggle. And if we're going to have real relationships with people, these should be relationships that challenge us in our lives. But the other reality is this. Not only do relationships take work, the other reality is this. Relationships are worth it. Solomon says two are better than one because they have a good what? Reward for their labor. They're profitable. 
God created human relationships not only to be necessary, but to be rewarding. And if you enter into a relationship with another person, no matter what that relationship is, if you enter that relationship with a godly view and goal, God will reward that effort put in in his name. And here, Solomon points out some tangible benefits in his day that he has observed in relationships with others. Now remember, the one who was serving himself was striving after what? The wind, which is, you'll never catch it, right? Solomon says the one who's investing in himself is only getting hevel in return. However, there is worth and value in companionship. There is, this is the reward or the good return that those who invest in it and others can expect. So what are those benefits? Well, they come in verses 10 through 12. First, Solomon observes in verse 10 that when, when one is with his companion, with his friend, he finds help in difficulty. He says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, I want you to notice here that what Solomon says here in verses 10 and 11 and into verse 12, he's talking about a two-way street here. Notice he says in verse 10, for if they fall, or, if, or in verse 11, they keep warm. He's, he's not focusing on one person. He's saying there's a two-way benefit here. That's how relationships, a good relationship works. Right? They go back and forth. If one person falters and fails, there is another, Solomon says in verse 10, who can give him aid. There is one to help in time of difficulty because his heart goes out to his companion. He wishes to help him in his trouble. There, are, there is support that is found in relationships. The one who is alone, Solomon says, finds no such help. He falls, and there is not another to help him up. Why not? Because he's cut himself off from everyone and everything. He's decided to live for himself. He's decided to live on his own terms. He's decided to shut everyone else out of his life. He's not going to find any support. And in times of greatest need in his life, he wonders, where did everybody go? But the truth is, he's isolated himself, and he's decided to live for his own benefit. Now, he may know how to manipulate other people, that he may benefit from them in his life for a time, but ultimately, he has no help and support when he needs it the most. Solomon says, there's benefit in people in relationships and companionship because there are people to help in time of difficulty. Second, Solomon says that there is comfort to be found in a time of need in companionship. Verse 11, if, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? The picture here Solomon gives is, is of two people in a time of cold lying together they may find warmth. Now, In a very practical way, two people in such a situation will find comfort and warmth because of their combined body heat. The one, though, who is alone, Solomon says, will suffer in the cold. There is companionship to be found in relationships in times of adversity. Apply that to the Christian setting of the church in which we live today. The world is a hard and sinful place. There are those that God has put in our lives in relationships to help us navigate those, these dark days in which we live. 
is necessary. Third, Solomon says there's, in relationships, protection in times of danger. He says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon, again, gives a very practical picture here of an enemy who has approached looking for an easy score. I, when I read this passage and think about what it talks about in verse 12, I think of the parable that Jesus told. The parable is often referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the parable, there was a man who was traveling to Jericho, and in that setting that Jesus talked about, that was a very well-known road that, that was a place where people would get, would get robbed. People would hide out on the road and rob people. And so, again, the same context in a way is, is one that, that is pictured here in this verse, that there's someone who is out alone and someone looking for an easy score. Now, in a situation like that, it's possible, you know, in this 1v1, right, mano y mano, that, that maybe it's 50-50, right? That one-on-one, maybe he, he prevails against the attacker. But Solomon says, what, a two-versus-one situation, that's, that's a sure bet. If you have your companion with you, and this guy comes out and tries to mug you, he's going to have to deal with both of you, right? And then he, he takes it a step further, right? He says, and now if there's three of you, right, that threefold cord is not easily broken. What is he saying? Again, he's saying there's value in community. We need that in our lives. We need to invest in it. We, we need the benefits that it provides to grow us in the Lord as a person. Followers of God are called to be wise in the world in which we live. Therefore, living for yourself isn't the call of a Christian. Solomon's already illustrated, living for yourself makes you a fool. Therefore, followers of God are to be active participants in godly community. Now, let me clarify here. This is more than just, hey... Be a good neighbor and a good little citizen of your community. Okay? That's, that's more than what Solomon is saying here. This is a call to engage with God's people carrying out the work of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. This is also, by the way, more than what some people think community is. Some people think community means this. A group of people who will help me when I need help. A group of people who serve my needs and my wants and my desires. That's not what community is. Community is a two-way street. Solomon noted throughout these benefits that, again, there is always a benefit to both the people involved, not just one. Right? Again, they, they, they. So what is the kingdom of God concerned with? The kingdom of God is concerned with people. If we are going to be effective servants for the kingdom of God, we are concerned with with others, right, as we glorify God. We're not called to be isolationists. We're not called to be self-servers. We're called to, to build relationships with other people. Within the body of 
of Christ within the church, we're called to build relationships, to build up and encourage and disciple one another. Outside of the church, we're called to build relationships with people that we may bring them to the kingdom of God, right? That God may do his work and then we may have opportunities to witness to them with the gospel. We're not called to look within ourselves. We're not called to use this idea of community to benefit ourselves. We're called to use this to invest in other people. And so as Solomon closes this passage, he now warns us once more then against selfish pursuits, even within the context of relationships. And we see, lastly tonight, that, that there is a transience to self-aggrandizement. In verses 13 and 14, he says, now look, here's, here is where wisdom is available in life. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. Relationships are necessary and beneficial, but if we try to leverage them solely for our own good and benefit, we're going to be left empty yet again, Solomon says. So Solomon says, here are two men. One is, is a poor, wise youth. The other is a foolish old king. And here, we learn something about wisdom. Wisdom is not guaranteed by age or wealth. Just because you have a lot of years doesn't mean you live wisely. Indeed, you may have met some people in your life that you're like, man, you should be smarter than this, right? But there's no wisdom there. And also, wealth is no indicator of wisdom. Just because you, you have a lot doesn't mean you made incredible choices to get there. Solomon says, here is a king, right? He's a king, so that means he's, he's got it pretty good in life. Here, he's older, right? He's been through the road of life. But what does Solomon say he is? He's foolish. Why? Because he's quit listening to other people. That is a sure sign of foolishness. We quit listening to other people. He may be accomplished and affluent, but he's stuck in his ways, hurting only himself and those who are under him. He is on the way down, while Solomon now also presents this other one, the younger man who is on the rise in the kingdom. Why? Because he is he's listening, he is wise, he is following the ways of the Lord. Wisdom is available then to all who will heed the word of God. So again, what is Solomon driving us towards? Fear God, keep his commandments. Observe and follow the goads and the nails. That's how we become wise. God's path is the path to wisdom. So here is the man who rises then from prison to the throne. And when Solomon talks about that, again, I see a picture that rises to my mind. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Right? Who was a victim of so many wrongs in his life, yet he continued to trust and serve the Lord. And because of that, God rewarded him. In our lives, we need to heed God's word and learn everything we can from him and others who would point us in the ways of God. We need not only, then, 
store up knowledge, but apply it to our lives that we may live for the glory of God. And so we look at this, we're like, that's great. You know, here's this guy. He's so wise. He's, he's doing the right thing. But Solomon says, even that's not a guarantee that we're going to finish well. He continues to tell the story and talks about the passing of popularity. He says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So Solomon sees this young man who is rising to power in his wisdom as the old man in his folly is passing from the scene. He sees the young man who would be king, who is immensely powerful and popular in his lifetime. His reach and his influence seem to be on compare. Yet, as a man, he meets his end like everyone else. And when he did so, those who came after him did not remember his name and rejoice in him. They didn't sing his praises They didn't exalt him. They moved on. They went to the next king, the next accomplishment, the next kingdom. And quite frankly, the the phrase here, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, communicates this. The, The phrasing and the wording here communicates that once he is gone, people will quickly denounce him, expressing displeasure with the way that he ran the kingdom. My, how quickly popularity passes from the scene. The sands of time envelop the popularity of even this wise one. We cannot live for popularity and acceptance by others alone. We cannot look to leverage relationships for our own aggrandizement and building up our own little kingdoms. This is not the purpose of God's creation of relationships. If we pursue such temporal, self-serving means... What does Solomon say? We'll find, we'll find heaven, we'll find emptiness yet again. It will be an endless, futile pursuit. So what do we do? We live with a heart and a mind towards others as God has commanded us to. The pursuit of fulfillment and meaning in life cannot be satisfied by serving ourselves. In a world where so much is out of our control and the cycle of life spins on, it's easy to fall into any of the mindsets and lifestyles that we looked at tonight. We are tempted to think that the only one we can depend on to give us meaning is ourselves. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we know what we really want and need, so we'll just trust ourselves. Once again, Solomon presents this conclusion as false. You will not find meaning in living for yourself. You will not find meaning piling up money and possessions or popularity. Once again, Solomon points us to God's way in order to find this meaning. Fear God and keep his commandments. And part of God's way is investing in the lives of others. We need others who will be of help to us in our spiritual lives. We need to surround ourselves with those who will challenge us 
in the things of God. We don't need to shy away from that, and we don't need to put on some face to feel like we're accepted. We need to be honest with, with this assessment. At the same time, we need to be then that kind of, of person, that kind of relationship and friend to other people. That we may help them and be a spiritual blessing in their lives. And so where do we find such an excellent opportunity for us to live out these realities and put God's commands in practice? We find that within the church. We find that within the community of believers. We find that within our own homes to live out the realities of the kingdom of God. There is no meaning in ourselves. There is no meaning in in pursuing my wants and desires and selfish ambitions. There is great meaning in living for the Lord and showing him to others. Father, thank you for the day you've given us and the opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you for protecting us as we came in. And Lord, we ask now as we conclude our service that you would do your work in our hearts, you would burden our hearts for the lives of other people. You would lay on our hearts that which we need to know tonight. You would convict us of the sin that we have let creep into our hearts and lives, and not maybe not just creep, but we have opened the door and entertained. And you would help us to make this right. We pray that you would help us to invest in the kingdom of God through the investment in the lives of others, not so that we may feel affirmed in what we want to do, but so that we may be challenged to live for you and you alone. And we pray that you would help us to see a mighty thing done through your work in our hearts this week. Watch over us as we drive home tonight. Bring us back to worship you again Wednesday night as we undertake Bible study and ministries of our church here. And we pray. Amen.